Hello and a warm welcome to the Living in Love and Faith podcast. Under our audio microscope in this edition, cultural conditions and circumstances. How might our surroundings and the times in which we live influence our insights, assessments, toleration and prejudices as we consider human identity, sexuality, marriage and relationships? Can we discern the guidance of God in the competing social ambiance, the governing atmosphere and sometimes cacophonous days of our rough and rowdy ways? My name is Stuart Henderson. I'm a poet, broadcaster, and songwriter. Joining me are four willing and gracious guests who put in many hours of biblical and cultural research into the taxing topic, seeking answers, how do we hear God through culture? The Right Reverend Dr. Christopher Coxworth has served as Bishop of Coventry since 2008, prior to which he was Principal of Ridley Hall, Cambridge, with a degree in Theology from the University of Manchester, followed by a PhD. Christopher is also an editorial member of the Multifaith Peace Charter for Forgiveness and Reconciliation. He is Chair of the LLF Coordinating Group. The Right Reverend Dr Jill Doff has been the Bishop of Lancaster since 2018. She was educated at Christ College Cambridge and Worcester College Oxford. She was ordained to the priesthood in 2004 with her ministerial training at Wycliffe Hall. For several years, Jill served in the Liverpool Diocese in various capacities, including as curate, pioneer, minister and theological educator. The Reverend Canon Giles Goddard is vicar of St John's Church, Waterloo, on London's South Bank. He served that innovative cross-cultural church since 2009. An honorary canon of Southwark Cathedral, he studied theology at Clare College, Cambridge, adding a further degree from King's College, London. Prior to ordination, Giles was the director of the Southwark and London Diocesan Housing Association and is the author of Space for Grace, Creating Inclusive Churches. Dr Joe Sadgrove is a research associate at the Centre for Religion and Public Life at Leeds University. Her areas of expertise cover religions in Africa, global Anglicanism and Christianity and sexuality. Joe's further for issues of justice were ignited by an immersive visit to Uganda, where she lived amongst women subject to gender inequities in relation to power, economics and HIV. When it comes to hearing God within our culture, the poet-priest R.S. Thomas was frustrated by the elusiveness of God's voice in the marketplace of modernity, culture and technology. In his poem Pilgrimages, he described his divine creator as such a fast God, always before us and leaving as we arrive. Christopher Coxworth, R.S. Thomas was as unignorable as a creaking door, according to Rowan Williams. Are you frustrated by God's elusiveness in the everyday? I think there's much in R.S. Thomas that I agree with in, in the little snippet you gave. And I think that fits so much with the God we read about in the Bible, who is, in a sense, always before us, as God calls the people into freedom in the promised land, 
There's the promise that God will be there ahead of them. And as Jesus appears to his disciples and sends them on their way, he says, well, I'll be with you. I'll, I'll go ahead of you. And yet at the same time, I think I do have a strong sense of God being present to human life today, to culture today, including the the normal things of human life. So I think that's one of the great appeals of Christian faith, to find ways of seeing God, of discerning God, of listening for the evidence of God. I, I suppose I find myself sometimes overwhelmed with the evidence of the presence of God to human life. In the LLF chapter on cultural context, the suggestion is made that the church needs to learn from culture and repent of its errors, because not to do so damages our mission. I, I find it interesting the way, and, and, and right, the way the book is, if I can remember correctly, talks of God being present to culture, rather than, in a sense, God being present in it. Now, of course, God is present with us and in our lives, but there's something to in that particular preposition to God is in relationship to this culture. And so that means that we have to be discerning in relation to the culture. We have to see what is good and what, in some way, images the God who created all things and that which doesn't. And that applies to the church as well. I was so appalled, I think, as a young person, that people who went to my school seemed to be excluded from the life of the church, whereas people who went to the school up the road seemed to be very included in it. And there I'm simply talking about a sort of educational privilege, if you like. And that worries me. And that, I think, is something I've been seeking the the church to repent from. And I think that has uh, implications for the particular subject matter of, of, of LLF. How much should the church then, as preserver of the gospel, be shaped by culture? Or should the gospel be interventionist and attempt to shape culture? Joe Sadgrove. For me, the great kind of, my great, liberation in terms of of Christianity was going to Uganda at 18 and and realising what Christianity looks like in a context where the world is perceived to operate differently from our Western way. So within a Ugandan context or the community I was living in, there was a community of people who knew that there was a visible world and there was an invisible world and that visible world and invisible world are constantly interacting and religion um, and kind of and other methods are, are religion, Christianity, um, whatever tradition you come from, are ways of mediating the interactions between what we can see and what we can't see. And if you think about Christianity within that framework, it, where everybody shares that perception of the reality of the invisible world, something really quite amazing happens in terms of the life and the community that it can can foster. And I remember coming back to Durham Cathedral, which is where my parents were when I returned to the UK, and being at the front of Durham Cathedral, beautiful, beautiful liturgy, beautiful music, thinking, is anybody alive in here? And I think that, you know, the the way that, for me, that cultural experience of liturgy and community life, um, but but particularly around liturgy, was so so stark. And I think if you have a kind of... 
you know, cultures aren't just, it's not just about whether they value things in simple ways. It's about kind of how the world is put together, how creation functions and how Christianity mediates and is part of that story. I think when we talk about culture and religion, it can be very superficial. With that example you you mentioned about uh, the the beauty of Durham Cathedral, the liturgy, mm. you questioning whether anybody out there had a pulse. Isn't that to do with the preservation of the aesthetic? Yeah, yeah, and 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 you know, might it shatter if we ask difficult questions of it? Now, I don't actually believe that because I think that liturgy and ritual are, are absolutely critical in holding everything together. Liturgy provides space in which very difficult things in life can happen and be processed but there was some but but it felt too removed from yeah I think there was a a sense of its removal from the very everyday questions and issues that people might deal with it's a kind of escape from that rather than being embedded at the heart of everyday life and meeting place which is the community that I've kind of been living in I suppose. Jill Duff. Yes, I'd only ever been lived in, been in Western Europe till I was 21 and then I spent two weeks in India and a week in Kenya um, with um, Christians there and uh, theological colleges and um, there was a, a livingness of their faith and they expected God to turn up and heal and cast out demons and that was a new thing for me. I remember distinctly landing in Gatwick and driving back to Oxford. I felt like we were asleep as a culture. I hadn't n- noticed that before. And I was interested that Leslie Newbigin wrote that, didn't he? When he came back in the 1970s from being a misher in India, he said that Britain is covered in a blanket of unbelief. I mean, my PhD's in chemistry from Oxford. I'm trained to the nines in rationalistic thinking. And when I was in Oxford last, I was reading a biography about C.S. Lewis. He talks about this disjunct between a very rationalistic mindset that we are trained in in the West. And that was what his colleagues were putting him down, were saying, you know, you're talking about all this nonsense about lions and witches and wardrobes. And it doesn't make life after death. That's rubbish. The real stuff is medieval literature, which is what they were into, which of that, that work has outlived. I don't know any medieval literature people from C.S. Lewis's time, but I do know his work has endured. And so we kid ourselves that we live in a rationalistic framework, actually. Giles Goddard. I mean, I think this is such an interesting conversation. I've just finished a book by somebody called Charles Taylor called A Secular Age, which tra- which traces the origins of secularism back to the 13th century and before. And I mean, you ask about Christianity and culture and whether culture should ca- shape Christianity or Christianity shape culture. Well, it's quite clear that the rationalism of the Western Christianity has its roots deeply within Christianity. And in fact, sorry about this, Jill, but partly in the Reformation, because the Reformation was a reaction against the kind of superstition which was identified with the Catholic Church. And the whole kind of scientific worldview comes out absolutely out of the heart of Christianity. So Christianity has been shaping culture really since, since well, since Constantine and before. And... I think what's happening now, and I agree with Jill and Joe that, you know, we've lost a sense of the numinous, but I think in a sense we have, you know, the church's history is partly to blame for that. And I think what's happening now is that culture is kind of biting back and saying, well, actually, church, you're not right about everything and you you need to listen to us for a change. I mean, I'm being incredibly binary and simplistic. And in a sense, I think, you know, you can go right back to the gospel and to Jesus and say, well, the church kind of lost sight of some of the core bits of the gospel quite early on. And that leads us back to power and patriarchy, because we can't possibly deny that the church has been a patriarchal institution really from very early on. And in a sense, I think we're, we're discovering something about what it means to be human, 
now which is different to what the church has presented. And I think the church, if it should repent of anything, it should repent of not listening. One of the things that the COVID context is really revealing to us is that there is still this this urgent questioning of uh, what does all this mean, really? You know, we are effectively bodies. We are liable to get sick and to die. And, you know, we've been kind of hiding away. I mean, I was talking to Anne Richards at Church House about, you know, what she's been experiencing dealing with spirit, what, what they call spiritual seekers in the context of COVID-19. You know, churches around the country have had people come to them asking questions that they haven't asked before about the nature of life and death and what happens after death. People are approaching Church House and asking this, you know, this conversation, it, it's laid dormant, but it's very much there. And you kind of throw in a crisis and, and those same questions questions come back and back and I think that the the kind of folly of secularism is it's it's you know that that cutting off of religious belief over here and only over here whereas actually what what the kind of African Christian model I suppose has illuminated and what Covid is now also showing is that those seeds those questions and that that concern just it it runs throughout humanity and and, you know it it doesn't take much to pull the string and everybody comes back to the fundamental question. I'd agree with a lot of it that Christianity has shaped rationalism has come out of a Christian worldview that God is reliable and there's certain certain constants that form the universe so it's not a perhaps a debate for, for my mind about those particular worldviews but more drawing out um, something I think that Russell Brand draws has drawn out brilliantly during lockdown. If you've ever seen, he's going to done a video um, on YouTube called "Why the Hell Are People Googling Prayer," and he basically said he's it's great as a way of teaching people to pray. It's brilliant, but he says you know don't listen to rationalism, don't listen to consumerism. They're all trying to push something. Yes, of course, religions are pushing things as well. There isn't like a bias-free um, cultural zone. And um, I think he speaks into um, some, uh, something that I feel is aching in our culture at the moment is that people are literally Googling prayer. People mm. are longing um, for something more, something more than we can see. And I, I think um, the, uh, the gospel is forcing its way into our culture, actually. It's an interesting way of, another way of angling the question is that we have, a, in our culture, we have a massive longing for home. I don't know if you've noticed that in our advertising, in our films. Ikea sell you the happy life at home. Right move will find you a forever home. And I think this is a sort of almost, I think the spirit of God is saying, we miss you, please come home. If there's anything for me in this great pause of 2020, I think God is using it to say, I'm, you know, I'm missing you, please come home, you know, can you tune in? <laughs> I'm, I'm here. And that's forcing its way into our culture. But the church isn't offering, sorry Stuart, but <laughs> the church isn't offering the home. So it's all very well. But if you're gay or if you're trans or if you're something like that, then people will not, I mean, I get a steady stream of people coming to me who've been hurt by the church. Um, they come to me because they know that we're inclusive. So in a way, they're finding their way to the home, but it's in spite of, it's not because of. So it's all very well to say, you know, where the people are discovering the numinous, but they're not going to come to the church to find the answers if they don't think they're going to be welcome. And I think the, the church um, somehow needs to learn, you know, we need to be more Christ-shaped because he was incredibly welcoming, wasn't he? And yet he had these incredibly high standards in terms of, you know, if you even look at a woman, you've committed adultery. So how we manage both those things is, is, I think, is a real challenge for our day. The Reverend Canon Mark Oakley, Dean of St John's College, Cambridge, writes in his book, The Splash of Words, that when religion becomes literalistic, 
the troubles usually begin. To take the Bible seriously does not mean shrinking it into your own particular system of thinking about God, others and yourself. Giles Goddard, the LLF chapter identifies the struggle the church has in keeping on side those members who see it capitulating to the surrounding culture. What comfort and counsel can you offer to those who charge the church with simply following the prevailing libertarianism? I think I can offer a lot of comfort in the sense that the church is not simply following prevailing liberalism or whatever. If we're talking about sexuality and gender and things, you know, we've been discussing this for 50 years. There is certainly not a kind of hands-up surrender to the, to the contemporary worldview. Quite the reverse, I'd say. But I'd also want to, I always go back to the scripture. I always go back to the Bible at this point. And I say, well, what, you know, where, do, where are we getting our inspiration from? What is the Spirit telling us? And the Spirit speaks through the Bible, obviously, um, but it also speaks through the world around us. And I think it's about encouraging people to listen, to listen to the experiences of those who are seeking God, to listen to the history as well, because it's not black and white, you know, right the way down the line. Um, and to listen to the voices of other Christians and, and to engage in relationship. And I think for me, the sadness about so much of these conversations is that we're in our positions and we can't develop you know, real friendships and understand where we're coming from. And as a priest, very aware of the theological tensions associated with, as you've referred to, the, the tribal labels of evangelical, liberal, orthodox and so on. What for you are the immovable teachings of the Bible? the things that allow you to meet on common ground with others? Well, it's the life and death and resurrection of Jesus um, is right at the heart of everything. Um, and I always go back to that. But I go back to the ministry and mission of Jesus as much as I do as, uh, to the you know transformation of the resurrection, which is the ultimate hope. Uh, and you can't have one without the other. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not an accident that Jesus was God incarnate. Jesus was in the flesh. Christopher Coxworth. One of the realities of LLF, it seems to me, has been that everyone around the table has been really serious about following Christ. Of course, people have had their disagreements and those disagreements remain about patterns of life that are authentically Christian. And yet there has been a real commitment to, together, wanting to discern and define uh, a genuinely holy life. And that has also, therefore, just as Giles has indicated, taken us back to some pretty intensive discussions about Scripture. And um, I don't think I've sensed that sort of, I don't know, uh, polarity perhaps that you've indicated in your question between uh, those who are wanting to um, go along with everything that the culture does and those who are wanting to challenge everything in the culture. I think the conversation has been much more sophisticated than that. For me, uh, and this relates closely to our earlier conversation, it's taken us into, and this is where the LLF book begins, a consideration of, I suppose, the universal context in which we find ourselves as human beings in every uh, cultural context, and that's being alive and receiving the life that comes from God, and then working out together what brings 
fullness of life. And I don't think there's been any question around the table that aspects of any culture, including our own, restrict the fullness of life. But we're wanting together to dig deeply into Christian understanding. And that has taken us, as I say, into intensive discussions about the whole sweep of scripture as well as particular texts about what brings fullness of life. Joe, I'm, I'm aware that we've been concentrating mainly on the British cultural context in which the church witnesses, yet the LLF book emphasises that faith looks different in every culture with its relevant mixed realities. What might the church in England learn from other cultures? I think that generally Europe and the Church of England needs to be better at learning from everywhere. There's no question about that, particularly in the COVID context, again, in which we are really struggling. One of the things that I really found useful about living in the Church of Uganda or living in the Church in Uganda and living in Ugandan communities was a much more articulated and kind of sophisticated understanding of the role, and this is going to sound very strange, but the role of economics in contexts where decisions about identity have life and death consequences and are attached to your inclusion or exclusion of a social body. And one's public image and one's public respectability is tied to the inclusion in social networks that really make a difference to whether you eat or you don't eat. So in the chapter in the LLF book, we talk about the polygamy and the Colenso, you know, Colenso and, and should we baptise polygamous Christians? And when, you know, when, when it was decided that you couldn't be baptised if you were polygamous and you had to renounce your wives, there are severe economic consequences for the women in those situations and relationships because polygamy is an economic system. Marriage is an economic system. And economics also hits this conversation about sexual inclusion or otherwise in the churches all the way through you know you look at the um, at tech and the debates about land and properties and there is always that component we are not atomized individuals who make decisions about our identities and ourselves and our relationships separate from networks of exchange and materiality you may think I'm crazy for thinking that but there's something in that Joe I don't think you're crazy at all <laughs> I, I... If I have a, a, a little frustration with um, LLF and feel that perhaps we haven't really fulfilled our full potential, as it were, in allowing ourselves too easily to think in terms of individual, as it were, relationships, rather than our responsibilities not only to uh, ourselves and our loved ones, but to others more widely. And um, I think there's a whole sort of dimension of thought that that is is further to do and I think that that is something that can be learnt perhaps from other cultures that think more instinctively about one's relationships to a wider community and I think there's more to say about the contribution of particular relationships to society and to family than we've yet said. We find ourselves now in a time of our, our econ economic system is imploding and we don't know what it's going to look like in a month's time, never mind six months' time. How can the church respond creatively and positively? Jill Duff. I thought what um, Archbishop Justin said in his book, Reimagining Britain, a couple of years ago, about the god of mammon 
I thought was very interesting. He put his finger on how in the New Testament, in, in Jesus' speech, he only names one other God, um, and that's the God of man and the God of money, and how often we end up worshipping him. And I think it's been interesting in these COVID times as a, as a nation and as a church that um, there's been, a, I think there's been a shaking of some of our idols, and one of them is the God of money. And um, uh, rather than instinctively reaching for what can make our economy better, there's actually other things have been foregrounded in our, in, in our world. And I think I've been encouraged by that, whether that's the relationships, the community spirit that's come out of this um, sort of Black, Live Ma- Black Lives Matter. And I think the sort of domination of the God of economics, I suppose, is, is, has been under threat because he's not that reliable, actually. Giles, your observation from your part of London, and it may be that, as we speak, more lockdowns are coming... How do you view the the jumble of economics that we're in now? Well, this part, of, we're actually hosting um, some people from Extinction Rebellion a couple of weeks ago. And I think one of the interesting things that is clearly emerging in culture is a desire to do things differently, is a recognition of the way in which, you know, the the consumerist line that we've been going down, you know, is leading us towards what, it looks and feels very much like an apocalypse. And what I think is interesting is that the church is also taking this more seriously than it has in the past. And over the past, past five to six years, the church movement has kind of pivoted on environmental stuff. And, you know, we're using our investments very differently now to how we were five years ago. So in terms of our previous conversation about the gospel and, you know, where it is, it feels as though in that in this area, there's a alignment or potentially more of an alignment between the church and the culture outside it than there might have been. There is certainly recognition that, you know, economic growth, going for growth is is, is not necessarily the, the way forward. I think in terms of this particular area here, um, you know, where it's been lots of people I know have friends who are losing their jobs and, you know, there's some really serious financial hardship around the corner um, and we're trying to respond to that but it's all tied up with the wider issues about how we engage with the world. Should the LLF initiative then be seen as a kind of major reformation in attitudes, a re-evaluation even of what is healthy and what is unhealthy in our culture, which in turn leads to, as Giles intimated, a better story to tell the world? It is going to be very interesting to see where this lands, particularly given the context that we're now in. I wonder if perhaps it can model um, a kind of set of dialogues between distinct um, scholars, positions um, and and orthodoxies, perhaps. But I was feeling when I read the chapter over to the, the chapter that, that we're talking about today, I was just thinking, is that going to be... Who's it going to please? Where's it going to land? And who who's it going to work for? Um, is it something that we can say this draws a line in the sand on this issue? Probably not. Is it a piece of work that has to be done before the next discussion around whether people on different sides or who hold different orthodoxies around sexuality can continue to be in the same church? I don't know. I, I'd like to say that I felt more optimistic about it. 
I mean, I like what you said earlier, Stuart, about is this a, a process of encounter? As far as that might have been for some members, I think that is a, a wonderful opportunity. And having worked on other processes of encounter around the communion, I think when that is done well, and if this could resource that being done well within the Church of England, I think that would be a great gift. Jill, is LLF then in relation to human sexuality, human identity, marriage and relationships, is it telling a better story? I think we're hoping it's telling a number of stories because I think the whole point is for different people with different views within the church to read the books, engage in the resources, hear something of their own voice in them, but also hear voices that they perhaps wouldn't have agreed with or, or, or understood. I suppose the, the analogy I have is this, this image of the Coventry spirit of reconciliation, of hearing the different stories that are coming through at the moment, and rather than kind of walking out of the room at first pass, actually stopping to engage, that for me is a really hopeful aspect of LLF. And the moments in rooms when that has happened, there's been a, I would say, a spiritual quality in the room that seemed to be beyond the sum of the people there. Giles, do you feel positive mm. about the LLF? opening up of talking about sexuality yes i do i do and i think i mean i've i said earlier we've been talking about this for 50 years and we've had various reports and the reports haven't worked either because they've been sort of too progressive or not progressive enough and i think we are trying to do something very different and i really hope that people take it seriously and you know try to engage with it in a way which might take people into difficult places and I think for me there are two kind of scriptural references which have been in, been in my well one's been in my head right throughout the process which is the letter of Paul you know the eye cannot say to the hand I do not need you and I have such a kind of strong sense that you know we need each other in the church I spent a time as a conservative evangelical and without that I wouldn't be here you know and, that, and I hear that story so often but then also we had the laborers in the vineyard on Sunday as the gospel and I asked people to, to, to say which of the labourers they thought they were. And I think too often, unconsciously, we're the people who go at the beginning of the day and we get cross with the other people who get God's love when they don't really deserve it. And I want us all to, the pe all to be the people who turn up at the end of the day and still get all the wages. But I want us all to be that because that's who we all are, really. We don't really deserve the love of God. So let's receive it and enjoy it. And I hope that the church can do that. And Christopher, a final word from you, please. We've talked about life as a, as a theme that uh, LLF tries to explore and it's just so pertinent to uh, human life at the moment as, as humanity seeks to hold on to life. Another theme, and really um, Giles has just referred to it very beautifully that LLF works with, is life together. This life that God has created is to be lived together. And I think um, those of us involved in in producing the LLF resources have had a, a deep experience of what it means to be uh, together and how, as Giles says, we need each other. I think it's worth saying that, that LLF isn't, and it might sound from, what, from the sort of tenor of our discussion, that it's, it's just about um, same-sex relationships. It, it, it's about so many things, transgender, intersex, but also heterosexuality and and how uh, people who um, who are heterosexual live out their sexual lives uh, and there's there's an enormous amount i hope in 
LLF, which enables us uh, both to critique our culture and some of the cultural attitudes to sex, but also to to see whether there might be understandings in uh, in contemporary culture that the church needs to listen to and engage with uh, more fully. Thank you very much for joining us in this podcast and my thanks to Christopher Coxworth, Jill Duff, Giles Goddard and Joe Sadgrove. There are more podcasts to be found in our audio compendium. Browse, choose and spread the news. You can text or email your friends about us or you could be really cutting edge and send them a postcard. You could even rate or review this podcast and more resources are available at churchofengland.org forward slash LLF. Goodbye and thank you for listening.